we're going to be in Jeremiah 11 and 12. Jeremiah 11 and 12. Um, I was just told that we are going to uh, have to postpone the VeggieTale movie night for this Saturday. So if you are planning on coming out to that, we are postponing the VeggieTale movie night for this Saturday. We will get a new date set up for that. So uh, if you know of other people that were coming and aren't here tonight, you are now biblically required to tell them that that is being postponed. So postponed for this Saturday. We'll get a new date out there. I'm sure Tony will get that up on Facebook. We'll get that up on the website too, but please pass that along. Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12. Now, if you remember correctly, when we've been doing our study here through the book of Jeremiah, we talked about how the first really nine chapters of Jeremiah, not trying to downplay it, but the first nine chapters of Jeremiah is really Jeremiah saying, Israel, you're going to get judged. And it's nine chapters of Israel you're going to get judged. Once we get to chapter 10, it gets a little more personal. Once we get to 11 and 12, it gets more personal. I like it that tonight we finally get to talk about Jeremiah as a person and what he went through. If you remember our introduction into Jeremiah a few months, I should say a few weeks ago, we talked about how this man ministered for over 40 years. Never had a single convert, never had a single spiritual success, was hated, eventually thrown in the dungeon, and possibly even, even martyred. We don't know for sure. But he just kept ministering. And now, obviously, we don't face that type of persecution. We're not under that. But you know what? We're all going to be disliked for making a stand for Christ. And we have to realize that that's part of what we do. So what you have here in Jeremiah 11 and 12 is God basically making his case in Jeremiah 11 and then Jeremiah's response to this in Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, we always try to find a key verse, especially when we're doing numerous chapters. Let's find the key verse. Key verse is verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 12, where it says, They have made it desolate. Desolate it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. Boy, that phrase really hit me. No one takes it to heart. I I couldn't believe the first time I got up and taught a Sunday. A Sunday was back in the fall, early winter of 1997. We were teaching, we were in the high school cafeteria, and I got up and taught a Sunday. And I remember it was in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if I remember correctly. And I couldn't believe looking out at the church at that time, I don't know how many people were there, I couldn't believe how many people just don't pay attention. Now, I'm not picking on you guys, because the Wednesday group, you're all saved, we know that. But it's the Sunday people, that you just, you can't trust them. And I remember sometimes people saying something about um, people falling asleep. I said, every Sunday somebody falls asleep. Every Sunday every Sunday, someone's doing something. One of my favorite stories, we were just talking about this a couple minutes ago. I was cleaning up after church one Sunday, and there was this one person that always sits in the same spot and always furiously is writing things down. And I was always so impressed with her. And then one time when I was in her spot cleaning up after church, I found what she furiously writes down, and it was her grocery shopping list. And I thought she was always taking notes. She's not taking notes. She's multitasking. Now, the point is, I look here at verse 11, they do not take it to heart. We can hear a message and not hear a message. We can be at church and not be at church. There's a lot of people that come to church and they're not at church. We can listen to worship and not worship. We can read a devotional and not really be devoted. See, Israel was there. They were going through all the hoops, jumping through everything. They sure looked good, but they didn't take it to heart. So, what did they do wrong? Four things they did wrong. First one, you can look at your sheets there. Israel lacked obedience. Verse 3 of Jeremiah 11. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. They just didn't obey. Flat out disobedience. 
They just didn't want to obey. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy. There's two passages here in Deuteronomy we need to look at. The first one is in Deuteronomy 11. Now, the reason we're going to be in Deuteronomy a lot, there's, uh, depending on your translation, there's about ten different references in the book of Deuteronomy to this idea of obeying the commands of God. The reason Deuteronomy is written, it's basically a repeat to the second generation. See, what you have in the Bible, in Exodus, is when they first give the law there, in Exodus and Leviticus, that's given to the first generation that came out of Egypt. Well, the first generation that came out of Egypt, they screwed up. That's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So now, as they're getting ready to go in the promised land, they take now the second group. And that's when they give them Deuteronomy. And one of the things they're stressing in the book of Deuteronomy is obeying the commands of God. Now, God keeps it simple. Deuteronomy 11, verse 26. It says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I commanded you today, so go after other gods that you have not known. How simple is that? I mean, how straightforward. I set before you a blessing and a curse. You obey my words, you're blessed. You disobey my words, you're cursed. Let's build on that. Please go to Deuteronomy 30 to stay in the same book. Jump ahead to Deuteronomy 30, please. Once again, how simple is this? This is the book written to the second generation coming out of Egypt to say, listen, listen to me. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. I mean, seriously, this does not get more black and white. Israel, if you listen to me, you're blessed. If you disobey me, you're cursed. This is the deal that they made. This idea of obeying the commands of God. And this phrase, obey, is mentioned four times in chapter 11 alone. What God is trying to remind Israel here is you made a promise to obey me. This covenant, which we're going to get to here in a little bit. Problem is, Israel lacked the commitment to do it. Look at your sheets, verse 6 of Jeremiah 11. Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of the covenant, and look at this last phrase, and do them. Once again, we can hear the message and not obey the message. We can read the devotional and not be devoted to the message. We can listen to the counsel and advice of people and not obey it. Israel heard Everything that God said, they didn't do it. I mean, we got five kids at home. They hear us. They can repeat what we say, but there's a lack of commitment sometimes. I remember one time Dawn said this to the boys. She told them to go clean their room, and she made it very clear to them. She goes, either way, you're going to clean your room. Now, you're either going to clean your room the first time I tell you to clean the room, and everything's going to go really good. Or you're going to disobey me and not clean your room, and then you're going to be disciplined, and then you're still going to go clean your room. So why not just go clean your room the first time and make it the easy way? This is a little bit the way it is with the Lord. The Lord says, listen, I'm God. Now, either you're going to understand that I'm God by willfully giving me your life and obeying me, or you're going to understand that I'm God when Babylon comes down and takes over Israel. Either way, you're going to learn that I'm God. 
but why not do it the easy way? Same thing still happens today. The Lord is right. I mean, there's, in this world of wrong, in this world of craziness, God is right. We either willfully accept that and obey that, or we have to learn it the hard way. That passage there that I wrote down in James 1, 23 through 25, that's a really simple passage where it says, not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. There's a lot of people that hear the word, but not many people that do the word. Israel lacked commitment. They lacked obedience, and they lacked commitment. That's why judgment was coming. We can relate to that. Our nation is the same way. Now, before we move on, have you got any quick questions, comments about anything here, the first couple points? Yeah, Brian. Well, if it's off subject, we can't talk about it, man. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's his name was Curtis. Uh, his wife's name was Penny, and um, he's the one that uh, Rich went up to see today. Let's just take a moment here and let's pray for just the Lamb family. Lord, we come to you now, and we just want to give you Penny. We want to give you Katie, and we just want to pray, Lord, that you'd be with them in all ways and all things. Obviously, a very difficult situation. I think of that passage in Corinthians where it says the God of comfort, the God of comfort will be with them. Lord, we pray that the God of comfort will be with the Lamb family right now, helping them through this very, very difficult time, and that you would just uplift them and encourage them in all ways and all things. Our heart goes out to them, and Lord, I pray that you'd make yourself strong to them. Be with them. Boy, be with them, Lord, and we lift this up in your name. Amen. Anybody else have anything here about uh, the first couple points before we move on? Okay, now, they lacked the commitment, which comes to the next thing. If you just look here at this point, it says Israel broke the covenant. There are so many verses, I couldn't pick a verse. This idea of covenant is mentioned again and again and again, and Israel broke the covenant. God's making his case here. Now, the word covenant doesn't carry much weight for us. I mean, seriously, think of the last time in everyday conversation you used the word covenant. You just don't use it. Now, you may use the word agreement, we made, we made a deal, or I signed some papers. This word covenant is completely above it. This word covenant is more than just you and I agree to do something. This word covenant is more than you and I made a deal. This word covenant is a lasting commitment where both parties more than just promise. More than just publicly say we'll do it. It's a covenant. It's not a word that we use in the proper context. Israel made a covenant with God. God did not break his side of the covenant. Israel did. What did we already establish back in Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 30? If you break the covenant, the curse will come. That's not God being mean. That's not God being angry. That is just a fact. If you break the rules, the punishment comes. The same concept applies to us today. If you don't believe me, go 70 in a 35 mile an hour zone in front of a cop. There's a rule. Now, try to talk your way out of that. There's a rule. The rule was broken. There's a punishment of penalty that comes. Israel broke the covenant. Now, guess what? We have a new covenant, the Bible says, with Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. And when I get saved, I'm making a covenant relationship with Christ to say the deal is this. You died on the cross for my sins. I now have entrance into heaven, escape from hell because of what you did. And then my side of the covenant is I give you everything. And when I say everything, it's everything. See, the problem is we have what we like to call buffet-style Christianity, where you take a little bit of this, you take a little bit of that. That doesn't look real good. I'll pass on it. To truly have a relationship with Christ, the New Testament term is you are a bondservant where you gave your life completely, totally over to him. That's what God is asking for. 
Stop and think about this for a second. Here's the deal that Israel made with God. We'll be your people, you'll be our God. Imagine having God in your corner. Who's going to touch you? I mean, that's the biggest big brother you could have. Nobody is going to mess with you. The problem was Israel didn't uphold their covenant. So as they didn't uphold their covenant, what did they do? They chose sin. Look at verse 15 of Jeremiah 11. What is my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. Now, this is kind of a funky verse. What is my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many? That's pretty straightforward. Lewd deeds. This was a sinful nation. Now, this phrase, and the holy flesh is passed from you, what that phrase means is that Israel was hiding behind sacrifices. Well, God can't be angry at us. Why? Why well, just killed a lamb? God can't be angry at us. Why? I just killed a bull. Now, David wrote in Psalms that he didn't desire sacrifice and offering. Now, we don't think that way today because we don't do sacrifices, but we still think along the same lines. Well, God's not going to be angry at me. Why? Well, I read three chapters today. He's got to be impressed. I fasted this morning. He's got to say yes. I gave 11% instead of 10%. Heck, I gave 1%. You know, I just did something. I did my shift in the nursery. He's got to be proud of me now. Wait a second. He wants your heart. To see, too often we just do the holy flesh. Lord, here's the animal. I killed the animal. I jumped through the hoops. Everything's fine now. Can we move on? See, that's what Israel was doing. Israel's saying, we're upholding the covenant. You want the animals killed? We kill the animals. We do the whole scapegoat. We do the whole day of atonement. We do everything. And they're hiding behind the holy flesh. But look what happens when you do evil, then you rejoice. Now, let's just be honest. We all know people. We may have been those people. I sure hope you're not still that person that shows up on a Sunday from 10 to 1130. You look good, you sound good. But my goodness, between Monday and Saturday, it's my time, my life, I do what I want. Wow. See, that's what they were doing. You did evil and they rejoiced. But I showed up at church, I did my thing. I showed up, I killed my animal, I did my thing. They chose sin. So what happens here in chapter 11 is the case is laid out. Israel lacked obedience. Israel lacked commitment. Israel broke the promise, the covenant. Israel chose sin. Israel will be judged. Now, before we get to the second half of this, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the Israel part of this? Because it changes direction now. Because when you are in the middle of sin, and you're in the middle of doing something wrong, guess who the last person you want to talk to is? The prophet, Jeremiah. They hated him. Look at this. Now it gets personal. Verse 19, Jeremiah's life. Verse 18, I should say. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. What was Israel's response to Jeremiah's message? Verse 19, let's kill him. Now, you may have faced persecution in your life and your witness at work, but I doubt you had your life threatened. Jeremiah, his life is threatened to take a stand for the Lord. Wow, that's big. He, as far as we know, he's the only one preaching at this time. He's the only one telling the nation of Israel that you don't get it. Have you ever felt so alone? I mean, just completely and utterly alone. No one gets it. No one understands. And there's just this darkness of where is everybody? That's Jeremiah. 
That's Jeremiah right now. They're out to get me. What's Jeremiah's response? Verse 20. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. Look at the end of verse 20. To you I have revealed my cause. See, this is what happens too many times in life. And I've been in this boat before. Something bad happens to you. And life is falling apart. And you need to find out who's on your side. I remember distinctly years ago, there was a situation out here at church. And somebody called me up and said, Hey, do you realize this person is doing this, saying this behind your back? And I'm like, Oh, they are. So what I did is I just started calling every single board member I knew and said, Did you hear this person? Did you hear this person? Did you? Guess what? I called all the members on the board and guess how many answered? Not a single one. I remember distinctly, I was in the Ottawa Walmart walking through the woman's clothing, just dialing furiously on my phone. You know, did you know this? No one had this moment of complete, utter loneliness in the soft line sections of Walmart at Ottawa. And then I look at this, verse 20, for to you I've revealed my calls. Like God taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm here. Yeah, God, I know you're on my side. I get that. Okay, I completely understand it. But I need other people. No, you don't. You, you may be in a complete part right now where you're doing everything right and, and you got nobody. I mean, there is... There is nobody with your back. There's nobody supporting you. There's nobody encouraging you. God knows your cause. Jeremiah did not have a friend. Jeremiah did not have support from people. There's nobody in Jeremiah's court saying, Jeremiah, I know you're preaching a good message here, buddy. You hang in there. Israel needs to hear this. He had nobody. So what does he do? I reveal my calls to the Lord and the Lord alone. Now that's easy to say and that's hard to do, especially when you're in the spot of feeling empty and alone. You have the Lord. Sometimes we don't think that's enough, though. See, look at verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, verse, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgment. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? I love the honesty of Jeremiah. See, we could have just stopped after verse 20 and said, Oh, Jeremiah, what a neat guy. I give you my life, Lord. I trust you alone completely. No, we have the honesty of verse 1. Look what he's asking. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Now, have you not had that same thought? I love the Lord. I am serving the Lord. I'm doing everything I can for the Lord, but I'm the one let go at work. That heathen non-believer keeps his job. I'm the one my car breaks down. That heathen non-believer gets the new car. I'm the one I can't pay my house payment. That heathen non-believer is adding onto their house. Have we not had those same thoughts? Why do the wicked prosper? Why, Lord, are they, look at this word, why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Lord, they are living in sin and they're more joyful than me. Lord, they have everything in life and they're more happy than me. That is an honest question. Now, we may not admit that publicly because we have to say praise the Lord. I mean, it's just what we have to say. We can't admit that we struggle and we have those type of thoughts. But do you realize Jeremiah had those thoughts? The whole book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk having those same thoughts. We, we struggle with these things. I encourage you, go read Proverbs. There's proverb after proverb of why do the wicked prosper, O Lord? Lord, if I'm on the right side, why does it seem like I'm losing? Jeremiah answers his own question in verse 2. You have planted them, yes, they have taken root, yes, they grow, they bear fruit. Now, you just stop right there for a second. They're bearing fruit. Now, it doesn't say what type of fruit they're bearing. 
The Bible makes it clear there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Just because they're bearing fruit doesn't make it good. But look at the end of verse 2. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. See, Jeremiah gets it. Yeah, they're blessed in this world. They got everything. They got the cute girl. They got the good car. They got the nice job. They got the good house. They got the good whatever. But they also have hell. Now, that's not something that's supposed to make us happy. That's something where we realize the end. We may not have the cute girl, we may not have the nice house, we may not have the good car, we may not have the good job, but we have heaven. And that's where Jeremiah tries to get the big picture here. Look at God's encouragement to Jeremiah. See, he answers, verse 5, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? I'm just going to throw it out there so the rest of the book of Jeremiah is a disappointment to me. This is my favorite verse in Jeremiah. I love this thing. This verse has been a foundational verse of of what I do to serve the Lord. If I want to run with the horses, excuse me, if I want to contend with the horses, I've got to run with the footmen. If I can't handle the good days in the Lord, how am I going to handle the bad days in the Lord? That's ministry right there. I tell you, you know what one of the dumbest prayer requests we ever prayed out here at Harvest was? Lord, bring people. Do you realize how much easier it would be if people didn't come? I mean, seriously. But when we prayed, Lord, bring people. And guess what? He answered. People started coming. Lord, this is amazing. This is exciting. People are coming. Now what are we going to do? Oh, wait a second. People are coming. You know what that means? Now we need to have, instead of two Sunday school classrooms, now we have to have three. This is exciting. Oh, you've got to staff that third classroom. Now we need four classrooms because people can't stop having babies. And so now we need more classrooms. Oh, now we need a bigger fellowship hall. Well, that means that takes money. Now we need to hire a staff. And now we need to, wait a second. Didn't you pray that the Lord would bring people? Yeah. Well, then you've got to run with the footmen if you want to keep up with the horses. You don't just wake up overnight and all of a sudden you're with the horses. There is, in the biblical concept, there's proving yourself And the little things. Jeremiah is being told by God, do you want a fruitful ministry? Then Jeremiah, toughen up. My my James Robert Irvin version says, Jeremiah, buck up here a little bit. Come on, buck up. You you don't realize what you've got to do. Verse 5, if the land of peace which you trusted, they wearied you, then how can you handle the battle that's going to happen in the Jordan? So when everything is going good for you, and you get what I call a spiritual flat tire... One little thing in your life goes wrong, and all of a sudden, where's God? He doesn't care and all this stuff. God's like, how can you handle anything else? I tell you, the most fruitful Christians I've ever met are battle-torn. They have spiritual scars. They've been through the ups. They've been through the downs. They have suffered in the Word. They've suffered in the Lord. They have gone through difficult times. But you know what? They survived running with the footmen, they survived the horses, they survived the land of peace, and now there's a fruitful, vibrant ministry. You go to some of these, what I call saints, that have walked with the Lord for years longer than I've been alive, and you sit down with them, and they start telling their life story, and you look at them and you say, you? Wait a second, you? You went through that? that that's what your relationships were like? That, that's what your life was like? That's what you used to do? Yeah, they ran. But the footmen, they've been with the horses. They have been in the land of peace. They've been in the land of battle. And God says, Jeremiah, buck up. That's a tough lesson to teach. Because we get little spiritual hangnails, don't we? Boy, don't give up. It's not worth it. God gives him encouragement. Verse 5. 
excuse me, a warning, I should say, in verse 6. For even if your brother is in the house of your father, even if they have dealt treacherously with you, yes, they have called a multitude after you, do not believe them even though they speak smooth words to you. Your translations may say flattering words or pleasant words, etc. The point is God's saying warning. If everybody's saying something nice about you, then you're probably doing something wrong. (laughs) And, And that is a truth that is hard to accept in Christianity. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my namesake. Blessed are you when they curse at you and revile you. Blessed are you. See, God's telling Jeremiah, verse 6, if you want everybody to like you, why in the world are you a prophet? We've said this out here at church before. If you want everybody to like you, don't be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you're automatically offending 4 billion people in the world. You're telling the Hindus they're wrong, the Buddhists they're wrong, the agnostics, the atheists, the Muslims, the Jews. You're telling everybody they're wrong. That that is not a smart thing to do. If you want to make everybody happy, tell everybody you're agnostic, and I want to hear what you have to say, and maybe I'll choose your religion. Everybody will love you and want to talk to you. But as soon as you make a stand for Christ, you're, you're offending people. See, Jeremiah had to be reminded, this is tough. This is tough, Jeremiah. So I like this as we start getting into who Jeremiah is. He struggles. He has difficulties. God says, hang in there. Now, before we get to our final thoughts here, does anybody got any quick questions, comments about the Jeremiah side of tonight's chapters, of, of him struggling, of him being human? All righty. Let's do the final thoughts here. Nice sum up verses 14 through 17 of Jeremiah 12. Thus says the Lord, Against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy the nation, says the Lord. Now, let's just break this down real quick. Did you see what God says? We just had a whole chapter of judgment in verse 11. We had a whole chapter of Jeremiah buck up in verse 12. But what do we say out here every time? In the midst of judgment, there's always grace. Always grace. Look at verse 14. Anybody who messes with Israel... I'm going to judge you. Look at verse 14. Against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance. The inheritance is Israel. Anybody who messes with Israel, you're going to be judged. So even though God uses Babylon and Assyria to judge Israel, he warns them saying, listen, you mess with my people, you're also going to be judged. Verse 15, look at this. After I pluck you out, verse 15, I'm going to come back and give you compassion. See, that, that's what God does. God sometimes spiritually spanks us and sets us right on his lap and says, now listen, I did that because I love you. I, I disciplined you because I care. I allowed that situation in your life that you are whining and complaining and crying and fearful and upset about. He goes, I allowed that in there to get your attention to show compassion on you. I am the guy that plucks the fruit off the tree, but I'm also the guy that puts the fruit back on the tree. So sometimes in my life, when I throw my little spiritual hissy fits because I'm not happy with what God's doing, in the end I realize it's the most loving thing He could do to me. So verse 14, I will judge you. Verse 15, but I will show compassion on you. Verse 16, obey me. See, he says, listen guys, when I judge you, it's because I love you, so I will show compassion on you. Then he says, just obey me. I mean, that is just such a simple teaching point that God has that he is trying to say. 
As we mentioned here, the word obey is used four times in chapter 11 alone. The simple concept of if you obey God, things go better. We got this little phrase we use with Layden. Layden's our fourth one. And he just has a hard time at night winding his little body down and just going to bed. There's always just something that pops up. So we've taught the voice. Unless it's in an emergency, unless it's an emergency, do not come out of your room. And we've established what emergency is. Emergency is people bleeding, people dying. Or, or, and so Judas says, what happens if someone gets an arm cut off? Yes, you will bleed. You can come out and tell me. We've established what an emergency is. So don't come out of your room. So we'll put the boys to bed. We'll be lay, sitting in the living room. And we hear little Layden's voice. Dad, Dad, it's an emergency. I come in. What's the emergency? Pause. Um, um. He's trying to think of emergency. He can't think of anything. So Layden, if you obey, you don't get disciplined. If you disobey, you get disciplined. It's just a, such a simple concept. Just go to bed. Same thing spiritually. If you obey the Lord, you won't get disciplined. If you disobey the Lord, God loves you enough to spiritually spank you sometimes. Jeremiah is telling Israel that's the truth of it. Israel doesn't want to hear it. This is the ongoing theme in Jeremiah. I really wish that I could tell you, hey, just hang tight. Jeremiah 20, all of a sudden the people start listening to him. It doesn't happen. This goes on and on and on. It's a struggle. But we can learn from this struggle because Jeremiah stays faithful even in a time of disobedience. It's tough. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything in Jeremiah 11 or Jeremiah 12 that we covered here tonight? All right, let's pray and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, it's good to be here. Thankful for the people that you brought out. We just pray, Lord, that we would truly obey. Lord, help us to keep it simple. We just want to obey. And, Lord, we want to honor the covenant that you have made with us. We want to be your people. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to give you everything. And, Lord, in the midst of trials and tribulation and darkness, help us to remember you are there. You, Lord, alone are the one that uplifts us. And we say thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Quick reminder, we're postponing Saturday's VeggieTale video night. We'll get you the new date soon. So you guys have a good evening, and God bless.